This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. January 5th, 2023, the Kevin McCarthy in Hell edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS's Prime Time from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I hope you guys had a happy New Year. We haven't even talked about it. It was happy until we should let listeners know that that your New York correspondent is operating on like an hour of sleep over three days because he's done something awful to his back. So I, I must be excused for anything that I say because I cannot stand upright. I want everything excused except for the smart things they say, in which case it's a sign of my innate, inescapable skill. I don't know whether this this uh, punch drunk sleeplessness will make you goofy or just slow. We'll find out. <laughs> Ow. Hurts to laugh. As I said before we came on, you are in less pain than Kevin McCarthy. This week on the GabFest, the gripping and really depressing spectacle of the House of Representatives being paralyzed by a Republican revolt against would-be House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Then, how did George Santos get elected to Congress and what should be done about him? And then the Biden administration made it somewhat easier to get the medicines required for medication abortions. Emily will explain what that means, what the significance of that is. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. As we tape on Thursday morning, the House of Representatives continues to stage a Beckett or a Sartre play like a waiting for Godot, but Godot is the House speakership for Kevin McCarthy, or no exit, but it is not hell that they are stuck in. It is the Capitol building. John, this is amazing. It's, it is, however, totally unsurprising. It is the natural culmination of several decades of increasing Republican nihilism and spectacle-seeking. Yes. Yes. I think the history to which you refer is um, going back, let's say, to Newt Gingrich when he was bounced from his role as speaker. He he um, accused the farthest right members who pushed him out as being he called them cannibals. Um, John Boehner was ousted by the same group of people, not the same individuals, but the same people exhibiting the same behavior. Paul Ryan was driven from the job by uh, some of the same forces. So the only way this is different in history is that basically now they're trying to get rid of the speaker before the speaker even has the job. So they're be- the, these forces are becoming more efficient at getting rid of speakers who they think are um, toadying to the Washington establishment. And is this a revolt over issues, John? Or is it just watching people who don't want order, disrespect anybody who, you know, they see as playing the Washington game. Like, what's the point? Yes, uh, right you are, Emily. It's both things, I think, actually. I mean, so it was long foretold and obvious this was going to happen to Kevin McCarthy in particular because he played um, nice with some of the uh, Congressman Paul Gosar, Congresswoman Boebert, and others who are in the this wing that's now trying to deny him the job. And so many people, including some who never make predictions about anything, said, if you don't um, censure these people for their behavior, 
um, and in fact, encourage it by not censoring them. It's just going to bite you in the rear end later when, and that in fact is what's happening now. But not every one of the, say, 20 or so who are blocking um, uh, his elevation to speaker at the moment is doing it for the reasons you suggested. There are some, Chip Roy of Texas is is one, who have serious um, issues and, and about serious things, like, for example, um, having an open amendment process to uh, for bills on the floor. That's something we should all want because it forces legislators to legislate. It takes powers away from the speaker. The speaker wants things to be orderly, wants bills to get to the floor that have the priorities of their party in it, um, and, and would like, if you're a Republican speaker, would like those things to pass only with Republican votes because if you need Democratic votes, then the legislation gets watered down. So tight control over the way legislation bounces through the system is something you want. Well, these open amendment process would allow anybody to offer things and amendments would get onto bills that might uh, be supported by any number of different kinds of coalitions, which would then potentially imperil the final bill. The supporters of open amendment process would say, no, it would make it better because it would mean more voices would have input on the bill. The last round of this, when they were um, uh, trying to get rid of John Boehner, the same version of the House caucus was saying, you know, we want somebody who's going to take on Mitch McConnell. The Speaker of the House doesn't take on the majority leader of the Senate, which was his majority leader at the time. It just doesn't, that's not the way the system works. And so um, the things that they are asking for are um, possibly uh, wise. It's just the reasons for which they're asking for them um, is unrealistic in a, in a legislative body where you need 218 votes to pass things. They cast themselves as rebels and rebels imbuse them with a kind of glamour that they certainly don't deserve when you look at who these people are. I mean, the idea that Matt Gates or Gates or, or Lauren Boebert deserves our sympathy or our attention to me is offensive. Um, on the other hand, it is deeply difficult to feel any sympathy for Kevin McCarthy, a man who has been willing to say or do anything to get this job, who has evinced very little interest in legislating for the good of the country and seems to have no plans for what he would do with it except investigate Hunter Biden and impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. So it is, it is uh, I had a boss who used to talk about situations being like the Battle of Stalingrad, where you want both sides to lose. It is a situation where, where Kevin McCarthy probably is like the least bad speaker available to, to if you're a House Democrat. On the other hand, it's it's he's just doesn't deserve it. Right, Emily? I mean, I there is just this spectacle aspect of this and the way in which he has clawed his way to the job. I mean, I was remembering this week that he came into prominence with Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor. They were supposed to be the young guns. They were in some ways like the rebels or at least the anti-establishment. Here's this new way figures of their era. And now, of course, like Ryan is... um joined corporate boards in private life or whatever he's doing. And Eric Cantor was drummed out of Congress by his own voters. So McCarthy's kind of left here trying, placating. But they helped unleash these forces, of course, that are now refusing to fall into line. And so, yeah, it is hard to feel sorry for him. I also, what do you think about this idea that, you know, this is a crisis because the House isn't around to respond to an emergency? Like, it seems to me like, didn't we just have a few weeks where the House wasn't around? And like, how they're not emergency room doctors. I have trouble keep taking this seriously. There are theatrical aspects of it that are potentially appealing. One is they all have to be there. 
And I, one of the things that this uh, restive group of rebels or whatever you want to call them are asking for is that they get rid of, and I think McCarthy has already said yes to this, get, ri- get rid of proxy voting or voting from a distance. You have to be there. Um, and I, I like that. I like the fact that they're all on the floor and they all are having now legislating and the job of being in Congress is not about what you do on the floor necessarily. But for important things like making sure everybody's around is uh, perfectly fine. But the other thing, as Jake Tapper pointed out, um, is that since there are no House rules, the C-SPAN cameras, which um, once the rules are in place, lock the camera in just on who's speaking and don't uh, because of, you know, they're given their instructions by uh, by the majority, those rules aren't in place. And so the C-SPAN cameras are able to show us all the things that are going on, the side conversations and all that, because there are no rules in place, which I think is just a kind of amusing little side aspect of this. I had a question, which I posed to you guys over text the other day, which I continue to have. So we're taping on Thursday morning. The House will come back into session at Thursday at noon. And, and by the time you listeners listen to this, they may have found a compromise candidate. Uh, John Dickerson might be Speaker of the House, for all we know. Anything could have happened in this afternoon session if, if McCarthy steps away from the field. But I was wondering is why the Democrats don't screw with the system and give McCarthy the votes to be Speaker. Why don't they just give him give him 21 votes and he becomes speaker, but he becomes speaker by dint of their support? It, it It's a kind of troll. I, I, I think I, I wouldn't do it because I guess you have principles and you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to just mess with the system just to mess with the system. But I feel like creating a system where Kevin McCarthy is speaker. He only is there because Democrats voted for him and and uh Republicans haven't resolved their own mess would be a would be a recipe for further further damage to the Republican Party. Democrats have argued since basically Newt Gingrich that the Republican Party is captive of its most ideological forces. And then of course that was true with Donald Trump. This is this is as if you you sat down and designed a celebration to enact that worldview. I mean, this is a display of everything Democrats have said about Republicans for a long time. And so I think that is its most maximum utility for Democrats. There have been ideas floated that Democrats would support McCarthy in return for, and this is never going to happen, in return for assurances that the debt ceiling would be lifted to, you know, infinity and a couple of other things, um, uh, you know, full funding of the government and a couple of other democratic priorities. But that's that's less of a trolling and more of a an effort to squeeze something out of McCarthy's uh, difficulty. Yeah, you have to imagine they would really govern. And that doesn't seem to be what the House is planning to do, right? I mean, the Ohio House did something like this, where some um, Democrats are supporting a more moderate uh, Republican speaker who did not have the support of the more, you know, conservative forces in Ohio. And so even though Republicans control, I think, like two thirds of the House, they're not getting the speaker they wanted. So you could imagine such a compromise, but it would take like sober minded legislators. And that's not what we're seeing in the House right now, which brings me to my question, which is like, how are they ever going to raise the debt ceiling? I mean, if between five and 20 hard, hard right Republicans can stop their speaker from being elected, how is that caucus ever going to let the government function, do what it needs to do to enable the government to function? 
I, the language surrounding describing this, uh, I find insufficient to the task because there are people who are just not interested in the project of anything other than their own project. And therefore, they're not even operating with the same sets of, of reason and exchange of ideas and argumentation that, w- that are required for the business of legislating no matter what it is. Um, and that's all on full display here. So um, yeah, this is a sign of, of all the awfulness that's going to come on anything that's difficult. And McCarthy keeps giving away more and more of his power, including as of Thursday morning, um, there were reports that he's going to reduce the threshold on the, the motion to vacate the chair, which is essentially the ability of any member to um, raise a vote of no confidence on the speaker. Um, and it was the threshold. Um, he first McCarthy offered to lower it to five members, uh, raising a motion to vacate. Now it looks like it's going down to one, but it means any piece of legislation. If they, if somebody was bummed, they could raise the motion to vacate the chair, and then that would just waste a bunch of time. But also, would that mean that any five Republicans plus all the Democrats could then expel him as Speaker? Like if if you could get it, to two eighteen, yeah. So if to, all the Democrats yeah. decided to vote, or six six. If six Republicans plus the Democrats, that's... I guess they'd have to vote for a replacement. Or no, they could vacate the chair. No, and then, yeah, I think that's right. Right, and then also the minute you have a debt ceiling resolution, somebody raises a vote of no confidence and the speaker is gone. So I just like, this is, yeah, it just seems like it's hard to see. And Tucker Carlson is still on the side of the, I will call them rebels for the purpose of the sentence only, right? Which suggests that their larger goal of just getting attention, ending up being Fox News hosts or guests, like clearly Matt Gates. I mean, maybe Bober too, that's what they're after. It's interesting, sort of, I guess, to watch Sean Hannity go after uh, Lauren Boebert while um, Tucker Carlson remains on their side. I guess like that you little sit and watch scene battle. Fox no, and... no, I I did God, watch I the <laughs> for hours, David, for hours. No, but I did watch Hannity go after Boebert, which I thought was kind of interesting. Anyway, I bring up Fox just because I think so much what is driving this is the bid for attention on right wing media. One other thing I'd just like to add is we should. There was a there was I think a usefully symbolic split screen happening on Wednesday, where while the votes were taking place on the House floor, the President Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell were meeting in Kentucky to celebrate uh, infrastructure spending on a bridge that connects Ohio to Kentucky. Um, Sherrod Brown was also a part of the um, a part of the meeting. A liberal. Democratic senator who is up in the next cycle, who Mitch McConnell really hopes will lose, but nevertheless, for the purposes of governing and getting things done, they were all there celebrating this bipartisan achievement. That was happening, um, while at the same time, the the all of the awfulness of hyperpartisanship was causing the House to to lock up. So it was a nice uh, um, kind of juxtaposition of of um, the two different ways of doing things in Washington. One of the points about Matt. Gates and Jim Jordan. So J- Jim Jordan is actually voting for McCarthy, but you, Jim Jordan is a real uh, far right conspiracist danger to the Republic. Matt Gates, that, but also kind of creepy um, that Matt Gates wants his own subcommittee on the armed services on the house armed services. He wants that Jim Jordan is going to get to chair the house judiciary committee and convene all kinds of nutty, uh, nutty investigations of of hunter biden and who knows who else and so there there is there are also going to be real consequences to these these folks um having positions of power 
beyond the fact that they're making spectacle now. They were going to continue to make spectacle for months to come. Slate Plus members get so much additional content for their lives, so many extra things to fill their days and nights up. Today, we're going to have a Slate Plus segment about football, whether you should watch football in the wake of the incredibly disturbing and tragic events at the game on Monday night. So we'll talk about that. George Santos, George Santos, George Santos is elected to Congress. He hasn't been sworn in, but um, he exists in a kind of, if, if everyone is in limbo, he's in a kind of limbo coupled uh, with, with some other particular form of torture. I cannot remember anyone living the kind of disgrace that George Santos is living in. He is, of course, the Republican elected to Congress in New York, taking a fairly uh, safe Democratic seat or a seat that was certainly up for up for a tight election. Uh, and in order to win the seat, he posed as the descendant of Holocaust survivors, as an alumnus of Citibank and Goldman Sachs, I think, as the founder of a dog protecting charity. And he was elected. And after some brief digging following his election, the New York Times and now others have determined that Santos is a serial fabulist of the highest order, not Jewish, not a graduate of the college he claimed to have been a graduate of or the high school he claimed to have gone to, never a Goldman Sachs employee, the dog charity, effectively non-existent. What there was was a trail of debt, of lies, a criminal charge in Brazil and an incredible open question, Emily, which is how did Democrats botch the opposition research on this so completely? So obviously, you know, he Santos is, is a is a kind of moral criminal, if not an actual criminal. He may be an actual criminal. He's lied. But there is a kind of basic due diligence that you would expect the opposition in a contentious House race to have done. And they seem to have completely botched it. Well, they did some of it. There's this like really long oppo document and it has some glimmers of it. They just didn't connect the dots and the press didn't either. And I think that part of probably why they fumbled this is that it's so unusual to have such a glaring trail of lies, right? In some ways, like the fact that he was a serial fabulist probably um, spared him because nobody would really think that you would do this much lying. So when you look at the Apodoc in retrospect, it has like, yeah, we we can't find this supposed charity registered anywhere. Or it seems like, you know, maybe he exaggerated some things on his resume. But the idea that it's all just lies through and through missed them. And I think it's like, it reminds me of the Stephen Glass episode from The New Republic, where you had like, just an inordinate amount of falsity going on. And it just like took a while for people to understand that that was even like possible. Well, but the New Republic no offense to the New Republic, it's like no one cares what's in some random left-wing magazine. This is a guy who's running for Congress in a year in a, in, a, in a very rich district, in a district which is clearly close for a house that is very going to be very close. Like it appears that there's just... Malpractice. It's a malpractice. And also, I guess the second point, which is that it's it shows how weak local journalism is in this country, that there that there was no investigation of who this person is running for a House seat by local media that that un, uncovered the 
the black market. Although in this case, resume. local media, I mean, this is a seat in Queens and Long Island. So local media yeah. is national media. They, like, good not have, they the have good Times. local media there. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, the Times did break the story. It just obviously took until after the election. And that seems crazy, but it also seems... It's like it's like before now that he is this huge story and it's so apparent that um, he falsified everything. It seems really obvious. And I mean, I think you're right. There was political malpractice here and maybe journalistic malpractice as well. On the other hand, you know, ex ante, like beforehand, we don't know that this is all going to add up into a giant story. Right. The North Shore leader did actually report about Santos before the election took place. It's just that nobody paid attention to the questions they were raising about his resume. Do you guys think that there are a lot of other people with significant fables and lies in their backgrounds who are serving in high elected office? I'm so naive that I assume that you can't get away with that, like that you in the age of Google, that you can't just be that brazen and inventing things about yourself. But clearly, I am just I am I am a simpleton. Well, there are little things that people have, um, you know, Richard Blumenthal was a pretty big one when he when he talked about service senator from Connecticut who, who talked about serving during the Vietnam War. Um, but he never he never saw combat. So he suggest I believe that was the um, he misrepresented his military service. Let's put it that way. Um, Marco Rubio's story about his Cuban parents wasn't um, quite as he said. But those are kind of one offs. But I think what what is amazing with Santos is just the the real comprehensive nature of the of the of the lies. I mean, it was really it's surprising that he hasn't already declared himself Speaker of the House, um, given his inclination to uh, to claim titles that he doesn't deserve. The Republicans are basically refusing to act against him. What what could they do? I mean, he presumably will be exiled and ignored. He'll be forced to show up to cast votes for them. But he's not going to be, they're not going to like have parties for him. He's not going to get any good committee assignments, if any committee assignments. What's funny is the ethics committee could do something, but the Republicans and their rules committee changes are likely to um, undermine uh, completely the ethics committee. So um, so that probably wouldn't happen. Even if he, was, even if he got a criminal con- conviction or was um, cited with a felony, that act on its own wouldn't disqualify him from holding office. So there would have to be a two-thirds vote in the House um, to remove him from office. Um, last time that happened was with um, James Traficant, uh, Traficant who, um, of Ohio, um, who was removed from the House after he was convicted of felony racketeering. Um, so... Uh, that would that would be what would have to happen. There would be the I think is the formal vote of two thirds of the house to. But but if you're in the majority, you have to. I th- uh, the mechanism for bringing it to the floor I think would go through the majority. So um, if they don't want to bring it up, he gets to keep his seat. The biggest legal threat seem to be campaign finance violations potentially. Just adding that to the mix. Should it be a crime, Emily? to lie to voters about who you are and your record? Is it a crime, first of all? Uh, I don't think it's a crime. I mean, right now we have this Supreme Court precedent that suggests that some lies have First Amendment free speech protections. Um, I, I read that case pretty narrowly. It was about someone who lied about their military service. I think it's still possible. I mean, obviously, when you defame someone, that's a lie, right? You have to prove that it was false. Uh, it can't be merely false to be um, to provide civil liability, but you, it has to be false, like, to start with. So, I mean, there are some lies that are actionable, and there's been some pretty interesting 
discussion in this whole avalanche of disinformation world that we live in, should we make it easier to prosecute people for lying, especially about election-related matters? And so you could imagine a law that tried to make it a lie for people running for office, arguing that this is key to our democracy and it's one area in which we should have a stricter standard. But it would be very hard to enforce and to draw lines, right? I mean, people embellish and fluff and you know, spin constantly. And so I think that's the tricky part. And you can argue, as I have in a limited case, and maybe you have too, David, that that the ability to lie, spin, and otherwise do some tailoring at the edges is crucial to lawmaking and politics. But could the real George Santos sue the fabulous George Santos? That might be the ultimate um, direction we're going here. I mean, David started out by saying that Santos like seemed tortured, but he doesn't seem tortured to me. It seems like he's just going to take the obvious lesson from Donald Trump and whoever else, which is just like, you just keep going, right? And like, it's, you know, whatever. Yeah, but I don't think he's going to be welcome. I don't think he's going to be welcome in the Republican conference. I don't think they want to be next to him. They'll take his vote when they need his vote, but they're not going to they're not going to do press conferences with him. They're not going to let him sponsor legislation. Fair enough. Fair enough. He's, yeah. He's no, so I mean, damaged. I think they'll just try to, like, keep him at arm's length. Um, and then what will be interesting will be the next election. How much will the voters care about this? Because presumably he will be there. And I guess the, the question will be, will Republicans let him run for reelection? No chance this guy is a more than a one-term member of Congress. I will bet any amount of money with any person in the world that this guy is not in Congress two years from now. We'll see. Any amount of money. It's up to the Republican primary voters, right? Or, I mean, you're imagining the Santos won't run again? I, I feel like that's overconfident. No, no, I, he could, he will, he, he, sure he'll run again. He will, he will get primaried. And if he doesn't get primaried, he'll get beaten in a general election. You cannot pretend. The main thing he did is pretend to be Jewish. Like, I honestly think that's the one that's going to just come back. And Why? Him. Like, pretending to be Jewish. I don't know. It just, it, it reflects a kind of emptiness of soul and character that is, that is, I understand, actually making up the dog charity too. Those two, those two are the real problems. The pretending to have worked at Goldman Sachs and whatever, like who hasn't pretended to work at Goldman Sachs? Holocaust survivors? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's two years away. Maybe he'll do some great thing. He'll like, you know, save someone, rescue someone from a burning building and turn into a hero. We get the lawmakers we deserve. Emily, what did the FDA and Justice Department do to make it somewhat easier to get hold of the drugs approved for medication abortions? The federal government, the Biden administration, did two things. The first thing is that it is now possible for regular pharmacies to stock and supply the drugs for medication abortion. Up until now, you either had to get them from mail order pharmacy, that was a COVID era regulation, or from the office of a doctor who's certified to supply uh, the medications, which are called mifepristone and misoprostol. Now you can just get it from your regular pharmacy. I should add that there are still hoops to jump through. The doctor, or in some states, um, nurse practitioner or midwife who can supply the medication still has to be specially certified, and the pharmacy also has to be certified. So this doesn't mean that, you know, every pharmacy is going to have these medications. It certainly is different from over-the-counter provision. That is not what the FDA did. But... In blue states where it's perfectly legal to get this medication, it's going to be easier to get them. 
Um, and the second thing, which is more legal and kind of a thicket of its own, but important, is that the Justice Department issued an opinion that's binding on the federal government that says that these old federal laws from the 1870s that literally taken appear to ban the shipping, mailing of any instrument, thing, drug used to procure an abortion, that those laws don't apply to mesoprostol and mifepristone because the FDA has legalized them. In other words, this Justice Department opinion kind of goes back, looks at all the cases about these laws. They're called the Comstock laws. Um, and says they've always been interpreted by the courts to be about unlawful instruments or drugs or whatever to provide an abortion. And so that's how we, the federal government, also interpret them. And so it's legal for the post office to accept mailings of them and also FedEx and everybody else who ships. And that's more of a big deal for providing the medications into states where there are state laws that prohibit them. The Justice Department is still recognizing those state laws, right? They're not saying no state can prosecute anyone shipping or receiving, but they're saying for purposes of federal law, these federal statutes um, can't be enforced. So if if uh, John Dickerson, if he mailed Mifeprestone to a friend in Texas to, to help them with their abortion, the t- state prosecutors in Texas could could charge John Dickerson with a crime. But... But federal prosecutors would not. Yes, exactly. There could still be a state law that could apply. We haven't really seen that happen yet, but it could. And the Justice Department can't tell the state prosecutors they can't do that. But they can say there's no threat of federal enforcement. These laws haven't been enforced by the federal government for like a century But to make that clear is important because, you know, companies, the post office, like everybody needs to know that up front. It's helpful for them to know that up front. Have we seen, Emily, since Dobbs, any attempt to enforce laws against people in other states, any criminal charges from one state to another yet? Not that I know of. I mean, this is a really interesting wrinkle. I, you know, wrote a big piece about these, the various legal threats um, in the Times Magazine in October. And one of the things that abortion opponents who follow this closely were saying to me at the time is that the midterm election was going to be important because part of the question of legal enforcement is a political one. Is there a political appetite for actually prosecuting abortion providers, prosecuting women and other people who receive the drugs? Like that's a very aggressive stance. And I think the fact that the Republicans didn't do as well as they expected in the midterm has been a setback for that kind of enforcement. Obviously, it could still be on the table, right? I mean, all it takes is one prosecutor who has a case that they discover So part of what I think is um, preventing this from happening so far is that it's not so easy to find such a case, right? And then you have to be able to prove various things, like that the person who sent it knew the drugs were going to be used for unlawful purposes, etc. So maybe that's why we haven't seen it so far, and it's still a possibility on the horizon. John, do you think it would be likely that any Republican president would attempt to undo the, these federal measures that the Biden administration has rolled out. I mean, for example, would they try to compel the FDA to 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 disapprove mifeprestone, or would they sort of tell the Justice Department now you're going to enforce the Comstock laws? Emily, you can fix me on this, but I think this becomes like the Mexico City rule, where um, 
which was about funding organizations um, overseas, giving foreign aid to to organizations that, um, in the view of Republican administrations, encouraged abortions um, overseas. Is that right, Emily? Is that what Mexico City did? Yeah, Um, gag order. So what you had was when Democrats came into office, they reinstated the ability to give funds um, to such organizations. And when Republicans were president, they undid them. And so you would, I would expect this to do the, to, to bounce the same way. It would be something that a Republican candidate would talk about in the primaries and probably not go on about too much in the general, given the way abortion politics played out in the last midterm election. That's certainly possible. I, so I think there's some regulations involving the drugs. Let's call them, they often get called Miffy and Miso for short, that a Republican administration would try to unwind. I mean, I think they'd still have to go through the whole notice and comment process. You can't just like wave a magic wand. However, making them full stop disapproved, like saying that nobody in the country can have these medications anymore, that would be a very big step to take because it would be... Um, flying in the face of what blue states have made legal. And so I feel like even, you know, a very assertive Republican president might think twice before doing something that dramatic. We'll see. Let's think that through because because it would be an interesting question to surface in the course of a campaign, because you would imagine that um, that those who are against abortion rights would want to vote for a candidate who would do this, who would do anything they could from the federal level to um, to to restrict abortion wherever it took place. And then as a political matter, um, you would we would have to look at the battleground states where it would matter. Right. So it doesn't matter if it's a blue state because the blue states are going to vote for the Democrats. So what in what purplish state would um, would would uh, move by a president? Um, hurt women who sought abortion rights. Uh, and and then we'd have our answer about whether they would talk about it. But I think Emily's, I think the process of literally unapproving an FDA approved drug would require so much monkeying with the mechanisms of the FDA with how the FDA works that it would probably be, I mean, that would be, I don't think, I can't think of an example where there's been a political move to take a medicine that's been approved and literally disapprove it for political reasons. Yeah, I mean, also remember these drugs have been approved since the early 2000s. So we're not talking about the basic approval being a new uh, Biden administration move at all. I mean, I think you're totally right, though, John, about the um, strategy or whatever you want to call it in the presidential primaries. And I guess the lesson I see in all of this politically, and I'm hearing this loud and clear from groups that oppose abortion. The presidency is going to matter to abortion access in the United States directly in a way that it hasn't before. Or it sort of did, but people didn't notice it. And now this question of abortion medication, which a lot of Americans still don't really know that what it is or that you can have an abortion by taking pills. I think by the next presidential set of primaries, that's going to be much more familiar. And the idea that the president has a lot of direct power over providing this method of abortion, as well as appointing judges, which we're super familiar with, that's going to be front and center and it's going to play out in the Republican primaries. To that point, Emily, what do we know about what's happened with medication abortion since Dobbs? And in particular, in states where abortion is illegal, do we know whether there is a lot of mailing of drugs or access to drugs in those states? 
Yeah, there are thousands of pills being mailed into into those states. We know that from a group called Aid Access, which um, I wrote about in October. The um, leader of that group, Rebecca Gompertz, is a physician in the Netherlands. And so she has been so far outside of the jurisdiction of any state that would try to prevent her from mailing the drugs. And they also come in through all kinds of other uh, companies that are on the Internet. Like if you Google the drugs, you can order them. Um, and there's some risk in getting them through the mail, but lots and lots of people in red states have been um, taking them and trying to cut off that flow. If you really oppose abortion, that would be a huge priority for you because it's the way in which a lot of people are accessing abortion in the first trimester, along with traveling out of the state. So far, we have not seen a state really make a big move to try to cut off that supply. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you, John Dickerson, are high on a cocktail of, of serious painkillers, serious painkillers plus a crystalline martini, what are you going to be chattering about? The painkillers I'm taking are, um, I don't think I want to mix them with a martini. Anyway, my cocktail chatter is about a book called Winesburg, Ohio, which is oh, by Sher- Sherwood, Sherwood Anderson. Anderson. Have you read it? Many, many, many years ago. Yeah, I had never. Not only had I never read it, I'd never even heard of it. And it was, um, it was a. Um, I stayed in a hotel in Chicago, um, and it was one of the books they leave in the room, just sort of, um, you know, should you have the free time. It's a very slim volume. I don't quite know exactly what I think of it because it's. I love it, but I don't know whether I love it because I love this. It's the internal stories of these highly idiosyncratic residents of this um, uh, town at the beginning of the 20th century, sort of 19, I think, 15-ish or so. Um, And these super um, internal fraught uh, uh, people, uh, internally fraught people. Um, But it's also a, um, a real window into kind of what, or this is what I imagine anyway, what life in a, kind of the lonely life of certain kinds of people would have been like in a world before we were all connected in the way we are now, which causes its own kind of loneliness, to be sure. But this is a kind of portrait of loneliness um, in that time period that I found really uh, affecting. Um, so it's a quick read um, for anybody who's looking for a, a tightly drawn, slightly spooky in weird ways, Um a uh, picture of American life at the beginning of the 20th century in a very small town in Ohio. The book that I associate with it in my mind, which I read recently, is Olive Kittredge, which is about sort of it's, again, a linked series of stories about people in a small town in Maine and um, also kind of depressing, really revealing, really human. Um, but I, that's a good throwback there, John. Uh, what's your chatter, Emily? My chatter, I'm going to do a double chatter because this is the time of year where I catch up on all the 2022 cultural offerings that I missed. So bear with me, listeners. Um, I wanted to recommend a book called The Furrows by Namwali Serpel, which I was sort of avoiding because it's about a difficult subject. Um, A child dies like on the first page, but it's really riveting. I'm about halfway through. Totally worth reading. 
Um, it's called The Furrows again. And then I finally saw the movie Tar, um, which I was fascinated by. It has all kinds of like flaws and wrinkles, but I was really interested in it. And my excuse for chattering about that are some relatively new pieces of um, some relatively new essays about it. So Zadie Smith just published an essay about the movie in the New York Review of Books, which I thought was great. Amanda Hess has an essay about Tar and also the new movie Women Talking in the New York Times. And Dan Kois wrote a piece for Slate with this interesting theory about how maybe the movie kind of turns into like a gothic nightmare horror story part of the way through, which um, I also thought was really interesting. So go consume all of that culture. Uh, my chatter, also a kind of melange. First of all, honestly, all I'm thinking about, because I'm sitting here, is my poor cat is dying. And she's sitting oh, next I'm to so me, sorry. and she's dying. Oh, no. And, um, she's just been my boon companion for years, and I'm, I'm probably going to cry as I talk about it. But she's, it's just making me really sad. Uh, okay, my chatters, my real chatters. Uh, first of all, I'm going to Scotland with my kids in, this, in the... Um, summer and i would love some recommendations of places to stay places to go an awesome tour a castle that you own that you would like to loan me an amazing hotel to stay at a great hike uh just email me davidplots at gmail.com i would love that thank you uh my real chatter is about it's something my daughter was telling me about which is amazing which i learned about called gastro diplomacy and it's based on the observation is like gosh, aren't there a lot of Thai restaurants, even though you, or at least I never meet any Thai people? Like, I don't know any Thai immigrants to the United States, but there sure seem to be a lot of Thai restaurants. And it turns out that Thailand is one of several countries that practices something which is called gastro-diplomacy or culinary diplomacy. And in the case of Thailand, it has an active effort to fund the growth of Thai restaurants all around the world. And so they... Uh, make loans to people who want to start restaurants um, and they help them set up the restaurants. They give them specs for the restaurants. And even more interestingly, they have standardized dishes. So they want, if you're going to have a particular dish somewhere, they want you, and then you go to a Thai restaurant somewhere else, they want that dish to be similar or the same when you have it somewhere else and spelled the same. And so this is a very conscious effort uh, on the part of the Thai government. Anyway, this is a kind of diplomacy. It's also practiced by Taiwan, by Singapore. I think there, my daughter said, although I couldn't find this, that Korea has done this to standardize the spelling of kimchi so that when you see the word kimchi, it's spelled the same way. And so that people know, oh, it's the same thing. I'm getting it. Um, but I love this idea. The, the, the easiest way to win hearts and minds is through the stomach, as the Wikipedia page says. Listeners... You have sent us chatters, and we have an amazing listener chatter this week. Not so much because it, it, the chatter is itself amazing, although it's very good, but because it has a great story behind it. So you you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. You tweet them at, to us at, at slategabfest. This week comes from Nathan Camps, who sent us a chatter. And then when we followed up to ask him to do it on the air, he noted that since he emailed it to us a couple of days ago, he has become a father. And his daughter, Alexandra Marie Camps, was born about eight hours after he originally emailed us. So mazel tov to Nathan and Alexandra and all the other camps. Hey, Gabfest. It's Nathan Camps here from Los Angeles. My cocktail chatter this week is about the mountain lion named P-22, who lived in Griffith Park for the last 10 years until his recent passing. 
and a Rolling Stone article in remembrance of him titled A Celebrity in a Land of Celebrities. P-22 was born in the Santa Monica Mountains, successfully crossed two of L.A.'s busiest freeways to reach Griffith Park, and rose to fame in 2013 after National Geographic published an incredible photograph of him underneath the Hollywood sign. His story was emblematic of the impact of urban sprawl on the mountain lion population of Southern California, and part of his legacy will be the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, which broke ground this spring. It will be the largest wildlife crossing in the world and will be instrumental in the conservation of mountain lions, who frequently are struck and killed on highways while attempting to make the same journey P-22 did. Though I never saw him, there was always something exciting about visiting Griffith Park and knowing P-22 was there, somewhere. And I particularly liked a quote from Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation, who said that even in the city which we thought wildness had been banished from a long time ago, he reminded us it's still here. Rest in peace, P-22. We all miss you. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest, and tweet chatter to us there, or email it to us at GabFest at Slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week, and wishing John a healthier back in weeks to come. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I turned on the TV on Monday night. I'm an avid watcher of football, and I turned it on literally to the play that um, stopped the game in Cincinnati, the game between the Bills and the Bengals, where DeMar Hamlin, a safety on the Bills, collapsed and uh, had to be resuscitated on the field. Hamlin, as we tape, remains in critical condition um, in, in a hospital in in cincinnati i believe and it's um it was among the most disturbing things i've ever seen certainly while watching sports but but even while watching television just to see a man become that close to death go that close to death playing a sport which is a sport of such tremendous brutality and violence um it was horrifying so we want to talk about whether whether football is a sport that we should watch. Do you guys watch football? Not really. I mean, a little bit. I don't have some, like, I don't watch football, but I don't really care about football. So for me, this conversation, it would be much easier to say this is a gladiator sport. We're watching people crash into each other with the force of, you know, so much strength and muscle and weight. And it's like crashing into a brick wall and and we should stop. Um. I don't I I don't watch it. I used to be a avid Washington uh, Redskins fan when they were called the Redskins having grown up there and gone to the games every Sunday. I playing football was a huge huge part of my life. I mean an, an important turning point because of its I don't know if brutality is the word, but because it uh, it forces um deal or 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 you'll be physically hurt. So I so the 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 um the roughness of the game is really important to me. Um, but I don't really watch it anymore in part because the, the Washington football franchise was ruined. Um, and also I just, there's just other things that get in the way. 
So it's not a principled non-watching. It's a kind of no. It's not a principled not a principled non-watching. But I think this is a really fascinating question, also because what um, what happened in Hamlin's case. <sighs> You, you know, ever since we knew about um, CTE, the, the the brain injuries that happen from playing football, it, it's a hidden cost to the playing of the game. And um, this was this was right there for everyone to see. In the same way, uh, when when Joe Theismann had it uh, had a career ending injury uh, when he played for the Washington Redskins, um, and that changes the way that you look at the game. But in this case, the hit was not, it was a regular hit, you know, in, in, its, in the way it appeared, which is, I think, changes the effect this has in a way that is additional to the fact that it's so serious. Um, and I think that's, which, so I'm just thinking about the way I frame this in my own head. Well, there's in some ways a kind of mismatch here, right? The danger of the game has been brain injuries and spinal injuries. Like those are the things that feel very specific to football. This is an injury, as I understand it, if it's what the doctors at first said, that was like a sudden traumatic blow to the chest, um, a kind of blunt force injury that it's very rare in football. It's like more common in hockey and lacrosse and some other sport I'm forgetting. Soccer Baseball. Right. And so there's this interesting, um, I mean, I don't know how much it matters because the dangers of football are so manifest in other areas, but um, it is interesting that football is having so much of a spotlight for this injury that's actually rare in football. Right. I mean, it is, I think the point you guys make is I so align with, which is that the, the dangers of football are really accretive dangers, which is it's the slow buildup in your mostly in your brain, but also in your body, in your body of, of physical ailments that make people cripples, physical cripples, but also brain, the brain buildup of, of, of damage to the brain, which can be incredibly debilitating and, and some cases life-threatening, in some cases life-taking for young men who've played the game. And that that is tragic in a way uh, that, but it's not visible in that same way that a, a the the collapse of a young man on the field who appeared to have nothing really appeared to have happened to him to have a collapse like that was so shocking. Um, I mean, and and I think one point that that I heard made on Hang Up and Listen, our sister podcast, is there are a lot of kids who die of this. Half a dozen kids every year die on football fields across the country. And so many kids play football, so it's not really surprising that. You know, half a dozen is a large number. It's also a very small number relative to the number of kids who play football. But but it isn't that that no one ever dies playing football. It's they do. Um, so it's it's just that we don't see it on national television in quite the same way. Right. So it, it really what I think your question seeks to excavate is what is what does one think about the garden variety brutality of football? The fact that the average. Career, I think, is three and a half years or something, which might has to do probably with quality of play, not just injuries. But Nate Burleson on CBS Mornings um, talked about playing football uh, as as he did, and um, he basically said, when you sign a contract, um, you make a um, you know there is a hundred percent chance you will get injured. That that's that's what you are um, preparing for, and that that's just that's part of the game. Um, and I thought that was so, so when you watch, that's partially 
the thrill and what makes the excellence um, so much more acute because people are are performing these athletic feats um, where the stakes are higher than in you know pickleball. I mean, I all kinds of human endeavors are built on emotional violence or physical violence and abuse, and football is a big and extreme example of that, and it's a specifically American one because it's really only played here, but. I have to say it brings me a huge amount of pleasure to watch the game. I find it I find it fascinating, intense, beautiful. I am, admire the the strength and speed and and the brutality of the people who do it and and their and their toughness. And and there is this pretense that it's warfare, which which I don't like. They do pretend they're gladiators and actually it's entertainment. It's it's not war, it's entertainment. They are there for our entertainment. But people do all kinds of abusive things themselves in order to entertain others all the time. And so football is a more extreme version of things that, you know, hockey has, soccer has, basketball has, all of almost any sport of competition, there is some element of violence, some element of danger, some element of of risking risking life and limb, and perhaps, you know, even more than that um, by playing it. So I, I can live with that. And also... This is true for the NFL. It's not really true for high school or college. These are men who've made a conscious choice. Everyone who goes into football understands the risks of football, as you were saying about Nate Burleson there. I mean, everyone knows that it's a, it's a game of tremendous risk, and they they see an economic opportunity, and they see an emotional. It is emotionally gratifying. As you began this segment, John, it it was a game that clarified things for you and and changed who you are in a way that I, it sounds like you think in a good way. Hugely. I mean, basically, probably one of the most fundamental things I've ever done. That's so interesting. I mean, I think the other thing to add to the mix is the way in which football brings cities together. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate this, but it's true that like when your team is popular in your city or, or even just getting spanked, that People of all walks of life are following it. It's exciting. I mean, football isn't the only sport by any means that can have that effect of pulling the community together, but it's significant. And so I'm always just so torn. I see the beauty of the game next to the violence. I think it's the juxtaposition that makes it such a force in American society and also the good that it can do for the fans. And on the other hand, you have this enormously profit-driven enterprise, the NFL, which has put in some, you know, safety precautionary measures, but they're not really changing the basic higher risks of the game because that's the sport. They can't. And I don't think that this um, terrible event for Damar Hamlin is going to change anything, really. I mean, there's this going to be this momentary pause, and then they're going to figure out how to go on and have the playoffs. And I imagine viewership won't particularly drop. It'll just continue. And there is something really disquieting about that. Yeah. So the question is whether in watching you're supporting a system where the players, not the stars, but the garden variety football players who are all stars because to be able to compete at that level is extraordinary. But whether the contract system of such a hugely successful enterprise that generates $17 $17 billion in revenue, whether the players who go, who all sign up for this kind of injuries, whether the system, um, whether they are protected for the brutality that they willingly sign up for and that we, that we enjoy as a part of the spectacle. 
or whether that there's an imbalance there um, and whether as a viewer you have or don't have an obligation to wrestle with that imbalance. I mean, they are signing up for a higher risk of dementia and brain injuries in their middle age and older life than other people. And that cumulative accretive risk, as David put it, is relatively invisible. At this point, you know, it would be hard to say that they don't understand that's what's happening because there's a lot of evidence about it. But, you know, people when they're young make all kinds of like rash decisions about long term risk. So it's not that surprising given the money and the fame and the glory that's on the line that they don't care. But no, they're not protected from it. It is also the situation where if one steps out, there are a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand men ready to take their place. And and a hundred of them probably have the ability to take their place. I remember when I was when I was younger, I was really I used to be really interested in mixed martial arts and ultimate fighting, the UFC, and it's kind of very gritty, crummy early days. Uh, I was just thinking about this. I went to some UFC event that was in a literally in the parking lot of a casino and outside of Biloxi, Mississippi. And um, and these guys were amazing athletes at a sport that at the time just didn't have money. It was a sport that was just becoming a sport. Now, mixed martial arts and ultimate fighting, there's real money in it and you can make a real living. At the time, it wasn't. They were fighting for $1,000, $2,000 and risking life and limb. And they, But they loved it so much. I've never seen people so passionate about anything as these as these mixed martial artists were about this sport for which they were they were not making a living you know the 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 deadline the time horizon for it was measured in year two years but they got so much gratification out of it even and it was imposing this tremendous physical cost on them and that always really moved me all right slate plus talk to you soon